if the world wants to be compatible with the net zero 2050 target, there is no need additional new fossil fuel supply investments for oil, gas and coal. Welcome to Think Change, the podcast from ODI, where each fortnight I speak to leading experts and commentators about the world's most pressing global issues. I'm Sara Pantuliano, ODI's Chief Executive. So the clip you just heard was Fatih Birol, the Chief Executive of the International Energy Agency. The IEA has never really been known for a progressive position on climate, but Dr. Birol now states that there is no room for any new coal, oil or gas if the world is to achieve net zero emission by 2050. So how do we balance the climate imperative with the stark reality that fossil fuels today still account for around 80% of the world's energy consumption? And of course, in many countries, these energy needs are growing. Yes, renewables are now economically competitive and have a lot of advantages over fossil fuels, but the reality is that many countries remain hugely dependent on fossil fuels. And it's not just for their domestic energy needs. It's also because, you know, government revenue comes through their exports. This episode is the first of a three-part series accompanying COP27. That's the 27th annual UN Climate Conference that is taking part in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, in November. This will be the fifth ever COP taking place in Africa. And Africa, of course, is a continent responsible for less than 4% of global emissions, and yet is facing some of its worst impacts. As a result of this, I am sure the questions around taking responsibility for addressing climate change will be very high on the agenda. And indeed, in the next two episodes of Think Change, we will focus on climate adaptation and on what to do about loss and damage as a result of climate change. But in this first episode, we'll be discussing how to balance the urgent need to face out fossil fuels with the role that oil and gas continue to play as a major energy source globally. And of course, as an important source of public revenue in many low-income countries, including those in Africa. Joining me today for these very timely discussions are three brilliant experts. First, I have Chuks Okereke, Professor of Global Climate and Environmental Governance and Director of the Center for Climate and Development at Alex Ekweme Federal University in Nigeria. Welcome, Chuks. Thank you very much, Sarah. Then I have Michael Jacobs, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Sheffield. Welcome, Mike. Delighted to be here. And last but not least, our very own uh, Ipek Gengchsu, um, Senior Research Fellow at ODI, um, whose work focuses on energy transitions and government finance to fossil fuels. Welcome, Ipek. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Great. Chooks, let me start with you. Um, Nigeria passed a very ambitious Climate Change Act last year. But then at the same time, President Buhari has announced that this will be the decade of gas. So from your perspective, what is the nature of the challenge that Nigeria and indeed many other African countries with abundant oil and gas reserves are facing when it comes to balancing their climate targets with their development and energy goals? How do you think we can navigate you know, a role for oil and gas in the coming years? Uh, thank you very much. Um, yes. I think the challenge is very well understood, and you've covered quite a number of them in your introduction. 
Uh, perhaps one of the ways to engage is to go back to the quote that we listened to uh, at the start of the uh, uh, the uh, the podcast. Um, IEA says that the whole world has agreed that we need to have a net zero by 2050. And if that is the case, that we don't have to supply any new more fossil fuel. That is great. But perhaps what he didn't say is also that the world agreed on a hundred billion support to the uh, developing countries, which hasn't materialized. He could have also added, if he wanted, that the NDCs um, is supposed to be based on both conditional and non-conditional uh, support, um, and that for the vast majority of African countries, the NDC target, which is based on the receipt of support from uh, industrialized countries, that that support has not materialized. So then a lot of Africans find themselves between the rock and the hard place. On the one hand, they are interested, committed to um, pursuing a transition away from fossil fuel regardless of how hard that uh, pursuit might be in terms of the balance of payment and revenue. But again, there, there's widespread poverty. Um, they do not have the technology access to even do renewable. And so they feel that it is a bit unjust to be expected to make this acceleration without the requisite support from the international community. 85% of the foreign exchange earning of Nigeria, for example, is from oil and gas. The amount of installed renewable capacity in Nigeria is less than 1%. And so when Buhari signs the Climate Change Act, it's a statement of intent to, um, to act. But even the uh, energy transition plan, which the government has designed, says that we need uh, 410 billion and about 10 billion US dollars per annum for, for this to be implemented. So a number of Africans are struggling to see how they can do that at a time also when uh, they, many of them are suffering from a huge debt crisis. And then on top of that, we see that more recently, uh, Europe and Michael may well speak into this letter, have also be coming to Africa begging for more gas supply in the wake of the, um, the war in Ukraine. So this contradiction is what characterizes the problem and challenges that African countries are having in making the transition. Many African countries, many low-income countries are really um, stuck between a rock and a, and a hard place. It is a massive conundrum for them, you know, between their development priorities, you know, their economic priorities, and of course, meeting their climate targets. What does the climate community have to say? I think it's important to go back to where we know our facts. And what's very clear is that the world just cannot afford to go beyond more than 1.5 degrees of warming, because the latest evidence uh, shows that the impacts are going to be more and more um, felt across the world and going to be harder to adapt to and very costly to adapt to. So I think at the start of this conversation, we just need to be very clear. And that's exactly why the IEA, but also other research that's coming out this week, it's, it's saying 
that we just cannot afford to go beyond 1.5 degree warming and therefore we cannot afford any more new fossil fuels. And I think this is the reality um, everywhere in the world. And Chooks is absolutely right that the West is being very hypocritical uh, and one in one way in which that we're seeing this is that the public money continues to be poured into fossil fuels. We've been doing research at ODI for years um, and the latest research we published, the Climate Transparency Report, it finds that governments, including in particular G20 governments, continue to subsidize fossil fuels. Uh, 2021 saw the highest level of fossil fuel subsidies to producers the G20 has ever uh, provided, which is tracked by the OECD, $64 billion dollars per year. So as long as the public money is going in the wrong direction, it's going to be very, very hard for the situation to change. Um, and we know that private money, of course, continues to projects that are economically viable, but at least it's very clear that public money has to, to uh, kind of be pulled away from fossil fuels uh, in line with a lot of commitments that countries have made. The other thing is that fossil fuels uh, have so far not benefited many of these countries, including Nigeria, to the extent that you know they claim that they can. So fossil fuel producing countries have exported a lot of them, exactly as Chooks is saying, countries have come begging to, to Nigeria and other countries for fossil fuels, and they have not benefited the, the local populations. And as a, re as a result of extraction of fossil fuels, countries have faced, um, you know, the resource curse where they have been hindered in their development, whether these fossil fuels benefiting others. So these countries continue to face development challenges and they don't get to benefit from the fossil fuels that they're producing. Finally, there is the risk of kind of stranded assets as well for these countries, these these investments that are being made there, many insurers and investors are now moving away from these assets. So again, continuing to invest is not going to benefit those countries in the long term. So definitely there is an opportunity for, for investing in renewables and it's an obvious choice, but it's about where the money goes to support that. That's key. Michael, you've been following UN climate negotiations as well as UK economic and environmental policy for decades. Um, what is the role of wealthy countries, and actually historically big emitters like the UK, in achieving our climate commitments? Are they doing their part? Well, thank you for uh, letting the listeners know just how old I am. Uh, it has indeed been, been decades. And I am very struck, like Ipek, about the hypocrisy of developed countries in, in this. There is the kind of long-term historical hypocrisy, which is that the reason that the rich countries are rich is because we use fossil fuels for 200 years um, and our development and our wealth was built on them, as well as, of course, um, from colonialism, um, which has uh, historically kept uh, the world's poorer countries poor. So um, we need to be very careful about lecturing uh, other countries. But Ipek is also right that we are now facing today in 2022 a global climate change crisis, which um, doesn't have anything uh, to, to say about the history. Um, so I think we need to be um, very clear that developing countries have to find a path to development and what the climate debate and climate imperatives cannot um, effectively ask developing countries to do is to not develop. Um, and in the uh, in the very difficult energy choices that are being made, um, uh, that is something which all countries are now facing. And it, you know, the short-term hypocrisy is that the UK, I mean, here we're sitting in London, um, is currently issuing another hundred licenses for oil and gas 
exploration in the North Sea, at the same time as apparently wanting the world to uh, not invest in oil and gas. That's the rest of the world. And and Germany is scouring the world for uh, liquid natural gas contracts and so on. So um, hypocrisy, I think, is is a problem. Um, On the other hand, the energy crisis that we're currently experiencing is pushing countries in Europe towards accelerating their green energy transitions, not in the very short term where we're going back to oil and gas simply to have enough uh, supply to heat homes. Um, but in the medium to long term, I don't think there's any question that renewables are have been given a push by this crisis, um, both for Uh, energy supply reasons and also for geopolitical reasons. I don't think Europe ever wants to be as dependent on Russian uh, gas or indeed gas and oil from other unstable parts of the world. And that is a good thing. And other countries are looking at this themselves. So I think in the medium to long term, the current crisis um, does offer uh, some grounds for hope. And in the UK and in most European countries, the idea of a just transition towards a decarbonised economy has caught on and not just amongst Greens. Two or three years ago, only Greens would be heard talking about a just transition. But this is now in official government documents of a Conservative government in the UK. Um, And why that's important is the just bit, which is that it's being acknowledged that you can't simply shift from fossil fuels without taking care of people who are dependent on fossil fuels and communities. And fossil fuels tend to be very concentrated in places because extraction and uh, and combustion occur in lar- at large scale in particular places. In the UK, we have 180,000 jobs which are dependent on the oil and gas sector or in it. Um, the only other time we've tried to transfer large scale industrial jobs or to, to get rid of large scale industrial jobs was the 1980s the period that we now know as Thatcherism, which destroyed much of the UK's economic and social fabric. We can't do that again. We can't treat the northeast of Scotland around Aberdeen, which is the oil and gas centre, as the next South Wales mining valleys. We've got to do this in a planned way. And nobody really quite knows how to do that. This is a huge challenge. And it's a challenge we've got to accept in the north. But we've then also, as Chuck said, got to support countries in the south to make the similar uh, transition themselves. But I think that's exactly it. I think this is one of those problems and a solutions journey that countries across the world can kind of go through together. So it's not like um, the developed countries are telling the developing ones what to do. We have to all learn how to transform these industries at such a large scale, both in terms of producers, so oil and gas producing um, uh, countries and and. Um, and communities and coal as well, but um, also the the consumers. So the energy crisis, again, is showing that the consumers have to be supported in this transition with the right financing to make sure that they're able to heat their homes efficiently and so on. And we actually had an episode on the energy crisis um, on uh, ODI's Think Change. But I think something that we're doing, for example, is looking at this um, idea of a just uh, energy transitions partnership. So something that was launched at last year's uh, COP, uh, the South Africa deal. This was a deal between South Africa and um, Germany, France, the UK, the US and the European Union. So instead of rich countries just saying, here's a chunk of money, they're actually working collectively together. South Africa saying exactly as Chooks was saying, we need support, we need financial support to make this transition. But it has to be demand-led. It has to be coming from the country. So we're looking at ODI at how does the architecture of such a transition look like for countries across the board, but also for coal transitions, but also oil and gas transitions, which kind of brings their own challenges. 
Um, but yes, and, and, and it's really common uh, in different parts of the world. And again, some research we're doing on Colombia, we're looking at how the energy transition process links with the peace process, because a lot of these transitions are not happening in silos. There's also movements around gender uh, and, and other political issues that are, you know, having to be solved at the same time. So we have to do it in a collective way and working with countries, but also with different stakeholders in those countries at all levels, at the local level, with unions and so on, and involved everyone and involving everyone. Um, but I, I, I just think that kind of delaying this transition and continuing to put in short-term measures to support fossil fuels. We're just, we're just cheating in an exam because we know we have to do this. We're just cheating ourselves if we don't face the problem and plan for the just transition. Yeah, we need we need to transition. We know that, but it has to be just. Because there are actually new alliances and, and movements emerging in Nigeria as well around just transitions. Do you find that promising? Uh, yes, but uh, I don't want to get my hopes up. I think IPEC has put her, her finger on it. The question is not really about, in my view, oil and gas per se. The challenge we have with oil and gas now is a, a symptom of a deeper problem. And that deeper problem is the problem of global inequality. Uh, uh, it's a problem that some people have uh, amassed, taken the resources that is due to the globe to make a rapid advancement economically in terms of well-being. And now the carbon space is closed, as it were, or narrowed significantly. And there needs to be a very mature, serious conversation about how to make this transition in a way that is just. IPEC started by telling us, for example, what we do know by science, which is that we need to stay on track to one, if we need to stay on the track to 1.5, we can't afford to put more carbon into the atmosphere. But maybe there are other things that we also know for sure by science, which is that we have 1 billion people globally that is under uh, 1, point, uh, 1 pound 90 pence uh, dollar per day. And that about 80% uh, of these uh, 1 billion people are actually in uh, developing countries, mostly in sub-Saharan African countries. So poverty is a real issue. And the, the challenge that we have had is that many of us who have been advocating uh, rapid climate action have not really understood, in my view, sufficiently that climate action needs to be contextualized and pursued in the broader context of sustainable development, poverty alleviation, addressing hunger. And so what we have is a two-way narrative where some people are focusing on climate action and other people are not able to come to terms to why they should be thinking about climate change when they cannot put food on their table. And so in the run-up to COP26, I have talked about the hypocrisy of the West and said that the net zero race should also be coupled with net zero hunger race, net zero carbon, and net zero hunger. You must bring these two together, otherwise, it is hard to convince developing countries um, uh, about this need for, for transition, especially, as I said in my original introduction, when the financial and technical support is not there. So there is an alliance that is emerging. I am part of that, trying to push this argument 
for uh, more accelerated climate action, trying to show people how, in many cases, you can actually act on climate change while also growing your economy. But sometimes I feel that I'm losing the debate because when we write this plan, whether it's the Energy Transition Plan or the NDC or the Climate Change Act, and I go around trying to convince a number of African uh, uh, policymakers on the uh, intellectual uh, merit of taking climate action, I feel sometimes let down because the money doesn't come, the technology doesn't come, the support doesn't come as agreed in the international with the international community, and this is big a big a big problem. So the alliance is forming, but it's very weak. And what I see is that there is still a major two-track, and this two-track is developing not only in Nigeria, but many other African countries, where as a result of pressure coming from international organizations, like the NDC partnership, uh, donor agencies, African countries make a pledge uh, that, that I know, both technically, politically, and financially, they cannot fulfill. And that is a big problem, because it is as bad to have a target that you cannot fulfill uh, as to not have a target at all. Chooks, can I ask you what you make of the South African deal on just energy transition partnership? For me, the jury is still out on that issue for several reasons. Number one, it is potentially possible that it is an interesting case that can lay the foundation or model for other countries to copy. But I worry about that in several, for several reasons. Number one, there are many African countries that need a just transition platform and plan, but they are not heavy coal or even oil gas producing companies. The danger of the South African deal is that it attracts attention only to those countries that are heavy emitters in Africa, not necessarily the ones that where poverty is right. This again reinforces that mindset, that ideology that I have already just spoken about, where the emphasis is on how to get the carbon down, not necessarily how to achieve sustainable development goals. Second, I also think that there is a potential that the South African case could derail multilateral agreement, that the emphasis now becomes more bilateral deals that replaces multilateral forum where poor countries have greater representation and voice. Thirdly, we do know that it is still unclear the extent to which the JTP, uh, JTEP in South Africa is actually just in terms of the conditionalities that may have been imposed on South Africa, what they actually need to do, the extent to which this will actually lift people out of poverty. And finally, the macroeconomic and financial model that went into the deal is suspect. We now know that there are several people who are saying that for this range or scale of effort that South Africa is expected to do under this JTP, that that money, about 7.8 billion, is a drop, a tiny drop in the ocean. So whilst we think that this sort of bilateral deal might open up new platforms, new ways of thinking. We must also be very, very cautious because there are several dangers that are also there. 
I think you're spot on, but you know, the, the question I have for the three of you is how is this all going to play out at COP then? <laughs> Who wants to start? Well, I, let me just, let's just go back to COP26 and how some of this played out there. I think we did see two uh, unprecedented commitments, which was great from the finance side. Again, Chuck's going back to what you were saying, countries have to put their money <laughs> where their mouth is. So we did have a commitment um, by uh, sort of 39 countries and international organizations to end international finance for all fossil fuels. And I think instead, I think just ending finance shouldn't be the end of that. It should also be shifting it to renewables and energy efficiency and other ways of exactly supporting these countries to meet their development goals. Um, and we also had another commitment um, that was that was announced there on phasing out all inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. Of course, all fossil fuel subsidies are inefficient if they're contributing to the climate crisis. So we had those commitments there. But since then, we've had some uh, sort of backtracking because obviously we've been in uh, exceptional circumstances and temporary responses have been put in place by uh, countries. Germany and Canada has continued to finance fossil fuels. The US is looking at expanding uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas, and so on. So we need to make sure that these commitments that were made a year ago become absolutely clear this year um, and, and that we move forward with financing clean energy. And, and governments can. So if we did shift, if all those people that committed to ending fossil fuels shifted their money to clean energy, we would have $28 billion a year in public finance, um, some research has shown. So, you know, it is possible. It's just about countries following through on those commitments. But I don't know if I'm very optimistic. Are you, Michael? Uh, not very optimistic, no. It, obviously, the events of the last nine months with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has raised global energy prices and led to inflation and exchange rates rising in the uh, ex uh, the US dollar rising, which causes immense problems for developing countries, the debt crisis is, is, has been uh, exacerbated and so on, leaves us with very um, poor political conditions for COP27. Um, you know, you want a, a stable global economic and political order in which countries can then focus on climate change. And we haven't got that at all. So there's been very little progress um, since COP26, certainly the emissions gap, which was the primary uh, kind of argument at COP26, namely that the global goal of one point of limiting global heating to 1.5 degrees and the trajectory that was needed for that um, was far lower than the actual trajectory that countries had committed to in their nationally determined contributions. We know this is the kind of um, the big paradox at the heart of the Paris Climate Agreement. There's a global goal, but all the emissions reductions commitments are national. And it would be, frankly, an extraordinary coincidence if all those national commitments added up to what is necessary to meet the global goal. But that gap was um, uh, acknowledged at COP26. And, uh, you know, the one one uh, good thing that happened there was that it was 1.5 degrees and not 2 degrees, which has become pretty much clearly the global goal that was uh, fudged in Paris. Um, but COP26 asked countries to come back at COP27 with stronger commitments, and they won't have done so. The only country that actually probably has made serious progress this last year is the United States, which is probably the first time we would ever be able to say that. The, uh, Hopefully not the last. 
Hopefully not the last. The, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which was actually an Emissions Reduction Act, but in America you can't call it that, um, is a very serious contribution to uh, to global emissions reduction. The US, I don't think, will claim that their targets can therefore be strengthened. I think they see the so-called IRA as a way of meeting the targets that they've already announced, kind of a stronger policy agenda than they would have had before. But uh, that is hopeful, but there's not much else. We, I know in future podcast, you're going to talk about the adaptation of loss of damage and loss and damage agendas, which look likely to be um, uh, to cause quite a lot of conflict. Uh, I think at COP27, um, the developing countries which were not happy at COP26 with the way the developed world was treating loss and damage are going to return to that in- issue with a vengeance. Um, but I do think actually on the finance front, there are some positive things. There's going to be a new report, which was commissioned at COP26, chaired by uh, Nick Stern from the UK uh, and Vera Songwe, a um, noted African, um, who have been looking at how much money is needed and where it can come from. They're going to say that the, you know, the 100 billion that we first said in, in Copenhagen in 2009 still has not been reached, as Chuck's pointed out. And it's nowhere near enough. And, when, and it's no, um, is not the number that we should be focusing on. We should be focusing on around a trillion. Um, and there are ways of reaching the trillions, um, particularly getting more money out of the multilateral development banks. We had a report that came out of the G20 last year, which has shown how you could so-called sweat the assets of the multilateral development banks um, to get more lending from them, meaning that those uh, asset bases they have could lead to more lending. Um, there are some interesting new developments in loss and damage where Denmark and, and Scotland actually have made uh, contributions to loss and damage funds specifically in a way that developing developed countries have not done before. And there is a very new, interesting new initiative coming out of Barbados. Um, the Prime Minister of Barbados, Mia Motley, was the kind of standout political star of COP26. She made a speech at the opening ceremony, which was um, a very powerful case for, uh, particularly for how climate vulnerable countries, of which Barbados uh, is one as a small island, are experiencing climate change. And um, she uh, and the Barbados government have come up with something that they are calling the Bridgetown Initiative, which is a series of proposals for how you could get more money flowing, some private, some public, some debt, but also some grants for mitigation, adaptation and loss and damage. And this is very early days. This is an initiative. More countries are looking at this and so on. But I think there is some momentum, political momentum there. And in the end, that's what's required. Um, you need countries And I have to say, this must be because this is where most of the money is, developed countries who acknowledge that the global crisis that we're in now needs a much bigger response. So let's see whether COP27 can be the launch pad for some of those new financial initiatives. Thanks, Michael. We will cover the Bridgetown Initiative in detail in the um, next uh, episode of Think Change in a couple of weeks' time. So the eye is very strongly involved um, in the initiative. But Jux, I want to get your reaction on uh, what we can expect from COP. A lot of talk and limited action. <laughs> um, but the... that would be true of every COP that there's ever been, really, yes. wouldn't it? Ge- ge- as Michael was saying, the geopolitical context um, doesn't lend itself, I think, to a um, a transformational COP. But also, there is nothing really that needs to be concluded in COP, uh, which is another big problem. Uh, African Egypt has led African countries to draft a 
Just Energy Transition uh, Initiative. Um, just as we had earlier this year from the communique that came out of the Kigali meeting, they will be calling for energy security and a greater diversity in their energy portfolio. This, if you like, could be short uh, euphemism for saying that they need more time to develop their gas infrastructure. They may actually be able to say that boldly in that document. Um, the situation is that unless there is a radical change in terms of finance, but also investment. Now, I think it's important that somehow we need to get into this um, podcast that only 2% of renewable energy projects globally has found its way into Africa. 2% of the total portfolio of renewable energy projects is what has gone into Africa. All of these years that we've been talking. So we have a country that we are asking to make radical transformation, leave the oil in the ground, forget about the balance of payment and revenue consequences, but also, well, we don't have any renewable energy projects for you. That surely cannot be right. And Africa will be pushing back with everything that can, they can muster, especially because of the fundamental condition of food insecurity, uh, loss, uh, increasing debt, and inflation that is also facing them. So there will be a lot of uh, talk, but whether there's going to be a game change, I am less optimistic. I'm, I'm sorry. I think you're exactly right, Chooks, because I think we have a moral responsibility to make sure that financing goes towards these projects. Uh, they are the ones that are going to help meet the development and energy needs of Africa and also many other developing countries while not jeopardizing our climate targets. So I think there is really no excuse for any more financing, international financing to be flowing to fossil fuel projects when renewables are competitive enough. They just need to get the right support to make them happen. Well, that's all we have time for, I'm afraid. We could have carried on for a lot longer, but thank you very much, Chooks, Michael and Ipek. I think you've given our listeners a uh, a very clear sense of, you know, the key issues um, that be on the table at Sharma Sheikh. Um, also, of perhaps, you know, the challenges and the, the level of expectations we can have given, you know, the geopolitical context and the fact that we've made very slow progress since um, COP26. Um, at the same time, we've heard very clearly that, um, that we have to act. Um, there is no time to wait. Uh, we have no choice um, given the emergency that we, we do face. Uh, but if we really want to make progress, you know, Chuck said it very clearly, we need to tackle the hypocrisy of the West and, you know, make sure that we've all very clearly explained that the energy transition really is just. Thank you to our listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. In our next episode in two weeks' time, we will be looking at why the issue of loss and damage is so critical at this year's COP. You got the flavor of that today, uh, but we'll be hearing from nations where the climate emergency really does pose an existential threat. Um, and we'll explore what might happen if the loss and damage negotiations fail. We will be putting resources in the show notes where you can, you know, deep sort of further into these uh, um, issues, both for today's show and the next two shows that we will be doing accompanying COP. Um, we hope you will join us again 
uh, in two weeks time until then thank you for listening